Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, I'll read to the end of the chapter. Extremely encouraging section of this letter. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, reading through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of the living God. It was given for you, with you in mind, that you might persevere in the faith once delivered to the saints. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, there we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let us pray. Father, as we come now to your word, even this morning, we are comforted already indeed by the fact that you are a God who forgives. You do so through the work of this sympathetic high priest. So as we hear about him this morning, we ask again that you would open our eyes and our ears to the truth of your word. May we draw comfort from it. May it cause us to labor on as your servants in this world, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It was the late S.D. Gordon who wrote of a devout Christian mother who was always teaching her daughter lessons of faith and trust especially telling her that she need never be afraid at any time because God was always near. One summer evening, she tucked her little girl in bed after her prayers, put out the light, and went downstairs. Then an electrical storm came rolling out of the west with vivid flashes of lightning and a reverberating roar of thunder. Suddenly, there was a simultaneous blinding flash and a deafening crash. And when the echoes died away, mother heard the little girl calling desperately, Mama, Mama. Any of you moms know that voice, those words? Come and get me, she said. The mother found her little girl in tears and trembling. After she had soothed her somewhat, she thought it might be an opportune time to teach a spiritual lesson and said, my little girl, has mother not taught you many times that you need never be afraid, that God is always near and nothing can harm you? The little one put her arms around her mother's neck and said, yes, mama, I know that God is always near, but when the lightning and thunder are so awful, I want someone near me who's got skin on them. In our passage this morning, the writer shows us who he is. He shows us the sympathetic high priest, the God of heaven who took on flesh, took on our humanity without sin. The sympathetic high priest, though absent for now, yet still is intimately concerned with the concerns and struggles and burdens and trials of his people. 
your burdens and struggles and trials. Let me ask you, even as we approach these verses that are well known, I think, to most of us, let me ask you, to whom do you turn when the miseries of this life rear their ugly head? I don't know all of your struggles. I know some of them, of course. I don't know all of your concerns, even. Some of you do a good job of hiding them from me, but you don't hide them from the God of heaven. Some of those struggles I share, I wrestle with in my own life and burdens of a fallen world. They, ministers are not immune. And like you, like you, I too am living in this world subject to the fall, to sin, and even to misery of this life. Each of day, it seems, could be a siege against the world, the flesh, and the enemy of our own souls. Again, let me ask, to whom do you turn when those things occur? You turn even to the sympathetic high priest, as the writer to the Hebrews here establishes it for us. I know and I understand, indeed, I've even thought it at times, even though I know how theologically incorrect it is, that if I could just see Jesus, have him touch me physically and comfort me with a hug or a kind word or look tenderly to me in the flesh and in the face, all would be much simpler. That absent he may be bodily, he has indeed given you his spirit. And he points you to a present involved kind Savior. For that is his purpose and mission as the Holy Spirit, as the third member of the Godhead. A kind Savior who alone knows at the deepest level your plight and who alone can truly give you the grace and mercy that you need. This is to whom the writer, whoever he was, penning this letter, points the first century Christians to. He points the second century Christians to, the 10th century Christians to, the 21st century Christians to, to you this morning. Even through the proclamation of the Word of God today, the Spirit still delights to point you, His people, to Christ to the sympathetic high priest who understands he is not aloof to whatever struggle you are experiencing. He is not foreign to them. He understands them intimately. And he is concerned for all of them. It is to him that we look. And it is to him that we must go. It is to him that we must trust It is to him that we must be settled in the reality that he will indeed give us comfort, grace, and mercy in our times of need. And so this morning, with God's help, I want to show you your great high priest that is sympathetic to you, his people, who offers you mercy and grace in your time of need. I'm going to show you this morning your great high priest who is sympathetic to you, And he offers to you his mercy, his grace, even in your time of greatest difficulty. I'm going to consider just these three verses in 
uh, two points uh, together this morning. First, we're going to consider what Christians have, a great high priest. And then we will consider what Christians could have, help. What Christians have, by declaration, by clear proposition, is a great high priest. What Christians could have is help from him. Let's first consider this, that, which you this morning possess by virtue of the fact that you profess the name of Christ. You have a high priest, not an ordinary high priest, a great high priest, the high priest, the one who is here given by the writer to the Hebrews as he describes him as one of supremacy. It is the genesis behind the way in which he phrases that opening words there in verse 14 when he says, since then, of course, going back into the chapter, looking beyond, uh, previous to what he's already said, but since then we have a great high priest. He doesn't merely refer to he who is Jesus, the Son of God, as a high priest. The writer describes Jesus as the great high priest. He who contrasts the high priest of the days of old with that of Christ as high priest. The purpose of the high priest, of course, as you well know from your understanding of the Bible, was to enter into that most holy place on that once a day, once a year event. We know as the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, they would go into that place and there they would offer not only the sprinkling of the blood for the people, but they would also offer for himself. This high priest, of course, has no need of that part of it, for he himself, he himself has no sin. Thus the writer combines the idea, the theme, the motif of the Old Testament principle and practice with this, the high priest, the one that all of those high priests, from Aaron to his sons after him, would be, as it were, pictures of the one to come. He who would fulfill all that those sacrifices and those systems and all that the tabernacle labors of the high priest of old were picturing. The writer combines these words to highlight the greatness of this high priest. Two terms, really, that could never be applied to the earthly priests of the tribe of Levi. Why? One, first, Jesus was a man like they were. He is, of course, a man. Jesus, the writer here, gives to us a reference to that when he makes reference to the idea that here this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He appeals to his human name first as he seeks to drive home the comforting reality that this Jesus, this Son of God, is not so unlike us that he could never identify with us. That he, as a man, he came and took to himself, added to himself, the very humanity that you and I possess. 
As you look down at your body and you see the, your fingernails and you witness the, the, your skin on your bones as you uh, look in the mirror and you see your hair and, and for some of you it's getting grayer as you go and okay, that's what happens. As you note at the end of the day you're tired or you're weary. Hunger. Sorrow. Even misery. The writer to the Hebrews says, hey, look, this great high priest, his name is Jesus. I want you to see that he was a man. I want you to understand that he's like you are. He is not so different that he could never relate to the plight of his people. His earthly name then given, given at birth, declared by the angels to his parents from Matthew 1 and Hebrews 2. But he doesn't leave him there. He doesn't leave us to just merely see him as a man. He goes on to add that this Jesus, the Son of God, to highlight for us that he was no ordinary man. And he was not merely a man, but he was the Son of God from all eternity, co-equal with the Father. The one who served in his Father's house, according to the writer to the Hebrews, one chapter back, as not a servant as Moses would serve, but one who would serve as a son. This is the one to whom he points and says, has supremacy the one to whom you and I can look and trust because he's not so unlike us that he cannot relate to our struggles. But notice also the writer to the Hebrews tells us about not only his status but his station. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. His station, where is it? What is the writer driving to? Is that he is describing for us his ascension. Now, it would be very easy for me right about now to get into a very deep discussion about the biblical theological element here as it pictures, but let me just give it to you very briefly. As the tabernacle was erected in the days of old, and the high priest would go into the holy place on that day of atonement, he would go in, obviously on a horizontal plane, he would walk across the floor of the tabernacle into the most holy place, through the veil, into the very presence of God. But the writer of the Hebrews is highlighting for us as a tabernacle turned on its edge, turned on its side, no longer horizontal, but vertical. And that which Christ, who is the veil, going through his own flesh, separated, he enters, therefore, into the very presence of the Most High God, to your Father's presence, that he might labor on our behalf. A place in which the high priest would leave in the days of old after doing his duty in there. And trust me, he wasn't in there long. He didn't want to be in there long. Get in and get out. But a place now where the great high priest, who is the God-man, dwells and has dwelt ever since he ascended. He passed through the heavens. He returned to his Father who gave him to us. 
That place in which he willingly left so that he might make atonement for sin. Not his own sin, but ours, yours, and mine. Unlike the earthly priest who had sin, this great high priest had no sin in which atonement was required. And what is he doing then, therefore? He is sitting at the right hand of his Father. He is not standing in that place. He is sitting in that place. He is occupying that holy of holies with his Father that he might labor day and night to serve the church that he gave his life for. He is there now mediating right this very moment for you, whatever it may be, whatever struggle you are experiencing. Your Savior knows about it. He is mediating on your behalf. He is pleading with His Father for you. And only He is able to do that because not only is He a man, He is God. And He remains there until He stands to come and get you. This is really the message of the entire New Testament. I've just summarized it, frankly, in a very short period of time. Jesus came as a man, the God-man. He served, he sympathized, he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. He identified with his people, he labored with his people, he died, he was buried, he was raised, he ascended to his Father, and now he's serving you today still. There's the New Testament for you, wrapped up. In a very simple expression. And because he came in this manner and because he left in this manner, he is able then, therefore, friends, to sympathize with your weaknesses. He can sympathize, even as the writer tells us. Because we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The high priests of old, they could not always do so. They did not always know what it was like. They did not always know all of the issues. And even if they did, they still were not able to, in an infinite way, sympathize with the struggles of the people. But this one can. And we know that because of the ways in which he suffered. All of this, that this high priest's life was one, really, was of intense suffering. I know that many of you, some of you, some of you are having very serious health issues. And you think it's just never going to end. Some of you are having relational issues. Some of you are having all kinds of other issues, financial, whatever the case may be. You don't have to live very long in this world to not see that life's hard. But Jesus suffered that way too. He wasn't immune. He didn't live in a vacuum. There wasn't a bubble following him around and kept him from all of these types of struggles and issues of life. Like the high priest of old in the Old Testament who suffered, he too suffered in an intense way. Not merely through the temptations we read about in Matthew chapter 4, but really every second of every day, every moment of his life was an intense struggle of suffering. Why? Because the God-man is on earth. And the forces of evil were never at their greatest level of fury. All that he faced, everything, 
was suffering. Why? Why was it that? Because he just wanted to suffer? No, because he did it so that he might suffer to understand, to sympathize, to realize what it would be like for my people, the people that he came to redeem, what their lives would be like so that he could sympathize with them. He learned these things through what he suffered. What are some of those things? I have a list here. It's relatively long. I'll keep it brief. My definition of brief. First, he was born into a low condition. This was a major aspect of his suffering. He took to himself flesh with all of its failings and weaknesses. The baby in the manger who came to suffer. Second, he was born under the law. I think lately in the news, I think we hear this phrase a lot, right? No one is above the law. Well, that's true. But what's remarkable about this is that he is the law giver who willingly subjected himself to the law placing himself under it to accomplish it for your sake and all of the burdens that came with it. He, the lawgiver, is now subjected to that, to the miseries of the curse of the law that was offered. Third, he was subjected to life of the flesh. With all that comes from living in a frail body, he took to himself He was hungry, he got tired, weary, disappointed, he had feelings, he was like you, he was a man. He was despised and rejected of men. That's not a fun experience. Some of you have experienced that, some of you know what that is like. I think I preached a sermon not too long ago on this very point. Jesus, who did nothing but serve and act with kindness and compassion to all around him, even healing and raising the dead, you would think there would be no more popular person on the planet. He was despised and rejected of men. He had no beauty that men would look upon him. It is likely that you have more friends than he did during the course of of his life. Fifth, he was betrayed by those who called him friend. We read of it in God's providence this morning. That wasn't planned. In fact, I didn't even know I was going to preach from Isaiah, Isaiah, from Hebrews 4. He was betrayed by those who called him friends. Jews, but, but one example of those that would rather see him gone instead of receiving that which he offered. What did he offer? Life eternal. Blessing on blessing, an inheritance that can't be, can't be measured with a price tag. The hope of glory, eternal life, all of it he offers. He offers to sinners. And wh- what do people say? Thank you, no. We want you dead. Thank you very much. Not just Judas, but the religious leaders of his day. His own people, as John 1 tells us, he came to his own and his own received him not. Betrayed by those who called him friends. He was denied. 
by a man who we heard just a few minutes ago said, I will never do that. Now, I love Peter. Sometimes I think I'm most like Peter. You know, Peter, you know, ready, shoot, aim. Peter. You have to admire his zeal. But he denied his Savior. Not once, not twice, three times. Many of us know what that's like. Jesus knows what it's like. I don't know what number I'm on, but anyway, the next one is he was tempted at the highest level by the enemy. The highest level. Satan himself visited him. Though we are tempted often, aren't we? We rarely endure it to the point of death. But the writer to the Hebrews makes it very clear that he did and does. The onslaught of that that temptation that cannot be adequately described in words that Christ endured. But his whole life, really, friends, was one giant temptation. Finally, but not exhaustively, he was killed. He was killed by wicked people. Murdered. Conspiracy broke out and Judas for 30 pieces of silver basically sells the Savior over to wicked people. The same price tag that would be required if an ox fell in a ditch. Basically, Judas was saying that Jesus is worth an ox. Killed by wicked men. Well, we know certainly that he offered his life. No man took it. Wicked men were the instrument by which it was accomplished. The spotless lamb who never did anything wrong. Never. Not in thought, word, deed. Was killed. Offered his life. Cried out from the cross, My father, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? He did it for you. Period. Not for his sake. He didn't know sin. He did it for you. This Savior, who were exhorted and, and encouraged to plead with, to go to, because in the God of our, in, the, in His Father that we pray to, because of this, the Savior has done for us. All of it. He knows what it is like. He knows our frame. He knows our struggles. He has experienced it Himself. And He is one, then therefore we can trust. Because He not only experienced it, He died for it. Can you point to me anywhere else in history? of a greater love than this. He can sympathize with his people. One who is like us in every way, tempted in every respect, the writer states in verse 15, but not yet without sin. Not only did he 
suffer as a means to show the sympathy. He shows here his sinless nature as one who could uphold all of it, that he might then be your great high priest. What we have here simply is the impeccability of Jesus Christ. He did not sin. He could not sin. Without this aspect of Christ, he could not atone for your sin. He could not sympathize for your sin. He couldn't be the great high priest. He himself would need one. You see, the suffering itself alone was not enough that he might be able to sympathize with us. He had to be able to bear under the weight of the Father's wrath that he might then sympathize forever with the plight of sinful people. He is greater than the earthly priest, therefore, because of his sinless nature. And as a result, he has the closest access to, the, to your heavenly Father than any high priest ever could. Well, it is certainly admitted and true that the high priest on the Day of Atonement would be awfully close to the glory of God. There at the Ark of the Covenant, it isn't close enough. This sympathetic high priest, by virtue of his place there in the most holy place in the glories of heaven, due to his sinless nature as the sinless Savior, is as close to the Father as any man could ever get. And so we pray to him, our Father, as he who represents him dwells in the heavenlies, ministering and mediating on our behalf. All of these facts about Christ as the great high priest leads the writer to sway the minds and hearts of his readers, or listeners as the case may be. He seeks to say, in essence, look, these, these earthly priests could not be supreme because there were not, there, there, there were not a son of the, they were not a son of the Most High God. They could not atone one ounce for your sin. They couldn't even truly sympathize with your plight and misery of this life because they too needed a sympathetic high priest. Therefore, he he seeks to sway the thinking of the people away from the types and shadows of the Old Testament and the old tabernacle system to the complete and final fulfillment of Christ and Him only. Some of us, I think, sometimes we hold on to trinkets, superstitions, other things, issues that somehow, some way, you think brings you comfort. Only this one can. The rest of it's just a facade. Only he is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. I can't even do that as much as I would love to. I can't sympathize with every weakness you have. But Jesus can. The picture you have of Christ on your wall in your home cannot sympathize with your weakness. It's a picture. 
the trinket you hold, wear around your neck, other types of super... None of that can sympathize. I want him. I want the God-man in the flesh. That's who I need to sympathize with me. And he does. Not the angels. Not Moses. Not Joshua, as the writer has argued already up to this point. Christ. Him. Him only. He seeks to sway our minds that we would hold fast to Him. The confession of our faith, as He puts it there. And to recognize that all of it is rooted and grounded as the object is this, the high priest, that he's just so succinctly given to us, as it were, an entire New Testament biblical theology lesson in just two verses. And we would hold on to him only. Nothing more. Not your husband. Not your wife. Your children. None of those people, as much as they love you, can sympathize with every weakness you have. Jesus can. And that is who we go to then. That is who we flee to. It's because you have this sympathetic high priest. You are afforded something that the world can never know or even understand. And that is he is the sympathetic high priest only for his people. Note the use of the pronouns throughout the verses. In verse 14, we have we and us. In verse 15, we have another we and our. In verse 16, we have an us and, 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 and a fourth we. All of this highlights that the work of the high priest, this great sympathetic high priest, is for the people he came to claim. And if you're here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, he is your sympathetic high priest. He's not that guy's over there across the room. Yes, he may be, but he's yours. It's personal. It was personal to him. As he offered his life a ransom for many, you weren't some blob of thought in his mind. He knew exactly who was coming to rescue. He knew exactly who he was going into the most holy place for. Just as the high priests of old knew who they were going in there for, this sympathetic high priest knows who he came to claim. And so what can we have then as a result? Well, we have help. Help. Now, this kind of, this point in the American world I think part of the problem in the church today is that we just don't want to say we we need help. I've got it. I'm good. I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. I can do it. I don't need any of this stuff. I can do it myself. I confess I'm sometimes that way. I'm so capable. No, no. No, you're not, you see. If you were, friends, you wouldn't need the sympathetic high priest. If you're so capable to get through this world and pilgrim through this life on your own, without, you wouldn't need him. You wouldn't need his mediation. You wouldn't need his intercession. You wouldn't need his comfort. You wouldn't need his grace. You wouldn't need the writer of the Hebrews to say the very next things that he says. What does he say? 
Let us then with confidence. Confidence in what? That which was offered, the exhortation that was already offered. The statements that have been made plainly about this priest, this high priest, with confidence, with with the fact that it's true, it's right, it's everything that the Bible speaks about. The object is Christ. With confidence in Him, we draw near to the God of heaven. Not my confidence. What do I have to offer? I know I'll get to heaven someday or I go to Him, but I'm a pastor. You certainly must be listening to me more than other people. Right. Confidence in that he that is the high priest, the great high priest, who has sympathized and suffered for me. The object of this help is not in myself. Let us then, he says, with confidence draw near to my own abilities, draw near to my degree. Count on that for the life that I live. No, no. The writer to the Hebrews assumes weakness. Draw near to the throne of grace. You are to draw near. And the thing about it is this. It's really really beautiful. In the days of old, in the tabernacle sitting there, in the Shekinah glory dwelling over the most holy place prior to the tabernacle when the presence of God was on the mountain and the fire was above it and the people were afraid. Moses would come off the mountain and like, put a veil over your face. You're scaring us half to death. It's the opposite here. Don't be afraid. Draw near. Come to me. Come into my presence. Come into the most holy place with me. But to draw near is an action. And through this high priest, we're invited now, therefore, to draw near to God, not run away, not stay away, not be afraid. But we're invited because we're not sinless. And we're told to draw near because we are weak. But Christ isn't. He is ministering for you today as He was in the days of His incarnation. It was Robert Murray McShane that penned, which is arguably probably one of his greatest quotes. As we think about drawing near to God as sinners through the high priest, the sympathetic high priest, he says this, if I, could, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Wouldn't that be nice? Sitting in your living room and you hear Jesus praying in your bedroom for you. There are people who think this way. McShane goes on, he says, Distance makes no difference because he is praying for you. Distance doesn't matter. As he dwells there in that most holy place, he's praying for you and calls you to draw near to God in prayer, to commune with him and with his Father. 
like the continual burning of the incense in the tabernacle, we are to be a people of incessant prayer because we have a sympathetic high priest who's gone before us. A people that know that you can confidently and boldly enter into the most holy place. If someone would have tried that in the Old Testament, they wouldn't have lived long. Arguably, they would have died the minute they touched the veil, but that's a discussion for another day. But today, friends, as you're invited to draw near to God, you can do so with confidence into the very presence of the God who made the universe to do it with boldness. Enter into that place where the high priest would only go once a year. Why? Because Christ is there. That's why. That's the reason. You can't go in there on your own. Reminds me of a story of a man who knew the chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys. He knew him. And because he knew the chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys, whether you like the Dallas Cowboys or not, I don't, but whether you do or not, okay. But because he knew this chaplain, he was able to enter into the very locker room of the Dallas Cowboys. But God helped him if he tried to do it without the chaplain because he wouldn't get very far. Brothers and sisters, you can enter into the most holy place where Christ is because you are with him. And so you do. You draw near to him. And as we do, as you do, you can expect to find help. This is not a maybe if God gets around to it, kind of, sort of. What's he say? Draw near with confidence. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. The help expected What happens when you do this? What happens when you draw near because of this sympathetic high priest who knows our struggles? What happens? We receive mercy. Implies the fact that we are sinners and and we'll need and do receive the mercy of God when we sin. None of us in this room can stand up and with any integrity say, I'm sinless. I haven't sinned today. You draw near to Christ. Through Him to His Father where you find help and mercy. Even as David did after he sinned with Bathsheba and confessed his sin, he drew near to God. But we always have, as we sin, as we need the mercy of God, we always have the extension of the Father's mercy. What is that extension? One that says, I do not mark your guilt. I do not keep a record of your wrongs. And every time you ask me for forgiveness for the same thing that you've done 8 billion times, what does he say? My child, I forgive you. Why? Because of the sympathetic high priest who has gone before you. That's why. We find mercy and grace in every circumstance of life, not just in the forgiveness of sins, which mercy points to, but now this grace to do and live and operate in our world, every circumstance of life and suffering and trial and temptation, the Father extends grace to us in our time of need. He exhorts you then, therefore, to draw near and plead for that grace when you need it. Is that not what Paul was told? Take this from me. Take this from me. Take this from me. And God says, you know, I'm, I'm no more. 
My grace is sufficient for you. Whatever it is, whatever trial, whatever circumstance, whatever issue you are facing, God's grace is sufficient for you because of Christ and only because of Him. Sometimes we don't think we're receiving that grace. Sometimes it may be because we think we didn't plead hard enough or we didn't pray enough. That's works righteousness, brothers and sisters, by the way. No, the grace offered to you in your time of need is not rooted in you or the eloquence of your prayers or your many prayers or your lack of them. It is rooted in the sympathetic high priest who is praying for you. So you draw near to this God Jesus may not be next to you in flesh and blood like the girl from the story wanted. Sometimes you just want a person with skin on him. He may not be sitting right next to you on your couch in your living room during your struggles. He may not be next to you in flesh and blood at this time, but he has skin and he, has, and he was made like you in every respect. He sympathizes with you. He is not aloof. As one who suffered, he knows what you're suffering. It is not merely a passing nod at your concerns. It is real. He pities the plight of his people. He asks them to trust him, the great high priest. If he is able to accomplish your redemption, listen. If he is able to accomplish your redemption, he is able to accomplish the consummation, the resurrection from the dead, and the heavenly rest he promises to all that love him. In fact, he is able to accomplish all that you need. If he can drag you from the pit of hell because of his work as the great high priest, he can solve and help you with every circumstance of your life. question, of course, is whether we trust him to do it. Some practical suggestions then, therefore, when you suffer, whatever that suffering is, small, great, life's hard. Remember that your Lord suffered for you. Meditate anew upon the suffering of Christ. You want help with that? Read through and think deeply over Isaiah 42, 49 to 50, 52 and 53. Otherwise known as the servant songs of Jehovah. In which you can't help but see the suffering of Christ. Second, when you suffer, whatever it is, run to the one who sympathizes with your weakness. This doesn't mean you can't talk to a friend. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that you can't talk to your spouse. I'm not suggesting that either. But this one will sympathize with you better than any of the others. Run to him. Plead his grace. Rely on his simple, clear answer. Really, it's, we just don't like it. My child, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to leave you. 
I'm praying for you. I love you. You're never going to be plucked from my Father's hand. No harm will come to you, even if it's death. I mean, that's not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian, is it? I've got you. You go to him. Third, when you suffer, whatever that means, remember that this life is brief. And I think part of the problem for us in these areas is because, well, we think life's going to go on forever. Young people, that's one of the problems of being young. When you suffer, remember that this life is brief. Meditate on the hope that the great high priest who now dwells in the most holy place ministering for you will someday leave that room. He will get up. He will leave and enter into our time and space again to take his people where he is. It's going to happen. Someday you'll see him. You're going to behold him. You will adore him in the flesh. You will see the scars on his hands and his feet and in the side. You'll see him forever. All his pictures, all his proof positive of his love for you. It's coming. Don't, get, don't fall in love with this world. It's brief. Today we're here, tomorrow we're gone. When you suffer, remember that this great high priest is coming again. He will come, he will bring you to where he is, and you will experience the bounty upon bounty and the blessing upon blessing in ways you'll never possibly be able to understand in this life. Until then, draw near to him. Patiently wait. Understand that His grace is truly sufficient for you as one who knows all that you suffer. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And while there are many times in our lives, Father, we confess that we forget these simple things. We can become enamored with the reality of life and the struggles that it brings, and we forget about He who is able to sympathize with every concern. Father, may our first move in our lives be to draw near to You when we struggle, not the last. May You be merciful to us, Your promises for us, and thank You for giving us a great high priest who daily labors for the needs of his people. Thank you for being so kind to sinners. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.